If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. back with another episode and hard to believe but this is the 20th episode of the leading learning podcast and as we're rolling into this episode we wanted to be sure to highlight a couple things one is that we do have a new leading learning event coming up Uh, we launched this podcast in advance of the leading learning symposium that we held in the fall in baltimore and we now have an event coming up in may specifically may 18th and 19th in arlington virginia and this one is going to be called learning technology design or ltd for short and ltd is a learning experience designed specifically for professionals in the business of continuing education and professional development so trade and professional association and and other organizations that actually market and sell continuing education and professional development out to their audiences and the goal of the event is to help attendees find new and better ways to engage learners and create lasting impact through the effective use of technology so we're hoping that you may consider joining us in Arlington on May 18th and 19th um, or that perhaps the appropriate people on your staff can join us in Arlington in May and I'd also like to thank one of our sponsors for the learning technology design event YM Learning formerly known as Digital Ignite and YM Learning is the maker of the Crowd Wisdom Learning platform uh, which is certainly one of the platforms you may want to consider if you want a place to host all of your learning experiences online. You can find out more about it at www.digitalignite.com and we'll also have that link in the show notes. But speaking of the show, Let's get back to what we're going to be doing in today's podcast episode, which is getting back to uh, doing uh, an interview. We haven't done an interview in, in quite a while. It's just been Salisa and I talking to each other, I guess interviewing each other in, uh, in a way. Um, but this time, uh, Salisa, I know you got a chance to talk with Peter C. Brown, who is one of three co-authors on Make It Stick, which is one of the books that uh we had as an emphatically recommended reading for the Leading Learning Symposium. And it's all about the, you know, the, the science of successful learning. That's what the, the subtitle says. Fascinating book. I know you must have had a fascinating conversation with Peter. Yes, Peter is a really nice guy, a really smart guy. And I found it really interesting to get to talk to him because if you look at the three co-authors of this book, book. Um, Peter really represents a, a different uh, quantity than the other two. Um, Henry L. Rodiger the third and Mark A. McDaniel, the other two authors are, are cognitive psychologists. I mean, you know, the the science of learning, what happens in the brain, what goes on as we're learning. I mean, that really is um, what they've studied for years and, and made their professions out of. And Peter uh, is more of a storyteller. He's a, an author. He's a, an ex-management um, consultant, um, but he also uh, now in his retirement rights um, both fiction and nonfiction, and he said that he really felt like what he added to the mix um, is that he was able to represent the role of the reader and so um, you know this idea that if he could translate what you know all these empirical studies and what the science is saying about what happens in the brain and all that if he could understand it himself um, and, and translate that and put it into 
to easy to understand ways than, than he was doing his job, which was to really represent that role of the reader. And I found that really interesting because I think it reflects what often happens in organizations that are in the business of lifelong learning, that are working with subject matter experts that have such deep um, expertise in a particular topic or field, but don't necessarily know how to convey that expertise and that knowledge to learners. And so, you know, I think a lot of the organizations we work with end up needing to play that role of, oh, I represent the learner. And so I think what Peter was doing in the the writing of this book is very similar to what a lot of the organizations listening to this podcast do. And I can definitely say if that was his role, um, he came through with flying colors on it, because this is a very readable book. It's one of the reasons that it was an emphatically recommended reading for us, um, because, you know, we wanted attendees at the symposium to tune into the science that's out there right now around topics like space learning, around, you know, effortful learning, the things that you really know if you're going to make learning effective. But it would be really easy for those to be turned into very dry topics, which they often are in other hands. But this was not a dry book. This was, you know, from my perspective, really a, a page turner uh, sort of book. And I, I don't know what the equivalent is uh, of a page turner for a podcast, but I'm sure this interview is going to be exactly that. So let's uh, let's stop talking and get to the interview. This is the Leading Learning Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Peter C. Brown. Peter is a retired management consultant and the author of many books, including Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning, which he co-wrote with Henry L. Rodiger III and Mark A. McDaniel. And it's Make It Stick, which is, by the way, a great look at what science and, and a variety of empirical studies tell us about how learning happens. It's that book in particular that prompted me to ask Peter for an interview, and he was gracious enough to agree. So, Peter, thank you for making time to talk with me. Thanks for the invitation, Salisa. And so I offered a very heavily abbreviated introduction of you and, and the book Make It Stick. So to kick things off, would you tell us just a, a bit more about yourself and your background and, and that book in particular? Uh, yeah, sure. I uh, spent most of my career as a management consultant working with organizations, both for-profit and non-profit, on strategic planning and marketing communications. And then... Uh, um, oh, uh, 16 years ago or so, I retired from that and decided to follow my bliss, which was to uh, try to write books. And uh, <clears throat> I had been, um, be- I was between books uh, a few years ago, uh, talking with uh, Henry Rodiger. He goes by Roddy. He's my brother-in-law, as a matter of fact. Uh, and uh, is a, a very uh, highly accomplished in the field of memory and learning as a cognitive psychologist at Washington University in St. Louis. And we were chatting about our different uh, areas of interest and uh, the fact that I was between books. And he was just reaching the end uh, of uh, 10 years of leading some research with colleagues like Mark McDaniel and others at different universities around the country. Uh, empirical studies into trying to get at the answer to the question, a very simple question, which is uh, what uh, teaching and learning strategies lead to better memory of the learned material. And he was telling me the things that they were finding, which were not intuitive and uh, caught my interest right away. And that uh, conversation and uh, numbers of conversations that followed led to uh, our decision to collaborate, uh, the two of us and Mark McDaniel, uh, to try to write up what science was telling us about how people learn and remember in a form that would be accessible and engaging for a general audience. Well, yeah, and the book definitely is that. I found it very interesting read. And 
you sort of touched on it, but one of the recurring themes of Make It Stick is that, you know, how we think we learn is not often how we actually learn best. And so, you know, I know, for example, you talk about things like rereading and highlighting, which, you know, so many students spend time doing and that those aren't really as effective as things like retrieval. So, you know, using quizzes or self-quizzing and or elaboration, like putting key concepts into our own words. And then the book also makes it clear that we're often poor judges of our own um, level of understanding and that we can mistake, um, for example, our fluency with, with the subject, with, with mastery of the subject. So I think the question I would like to ask is, you know, what advice or if you have any uh, empirical evidence to point to, um, that would be great as well. But any advice or evidence that can help us um, know when to doubt our intuition and when to go with it. And I'm, I'm thinking in particular of subjects that aren't as cut and dry, you know, things like maybe leadership, leadership or persuasion. Um, and, you know, where there's kind of more of a, an interpretation between what's the, you know, quote, right answer and the wrong answer. <laughs> That's a pretty broad question. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think that um, first and foremost, uh, to um, try to uh, calibrate your judgment of what you know and don't know or what you can and cannot do uh, is to put yourself in situations where you must apply the knowledge or the skill in a variety of different settings. And so we think of uh, quizzing or uh, various kinds of practice forums on the, on the ball field uh, as tests of whether, we're, whether we have mastered uh, the subject or the skill. When you get into very abstract areas of leadership and persuasion, salesmanship, uh, uh, any field you can think of, it's, it gets a little uh, soft. And uh, I would say from my reading uh, in uh, bringing myself up to speed to be able to write this book, one of the telling comments uh, by scientists who study this question of whether people are aware of their ineffectiveness is that the, the road to self-knowledge in those fields uh, where you can't take a simple test really comes through other people. Uh, what kind of feedback are you getting? Can you uh, surround yourself with a few people who will talk to you straight? Um, are you getting word-of-mouth referrals? Uh, you need to develop a, a handful of uh, indicators that, and lean into them that would give you some sense uh, from other people and how they're responding and reacting to what you're doing as to whether you're having the effect that you want to have. This is not something that comes out of the body of empirical research that we report out in the book uh, and to make it stick. But it, it is something that, that I've read something about in the, in the broader research uh, for the book in terms of whether we are good, uh, accurate judges of what we know and don't know. Often we're not. Right. No, but I, I think your, your point about then relying on, you know, others and not just any others but sort of knowing who those peers are or who those uh, resources are that you can use to calibrate that that's that's great and so I think as I shared with you the the leading learning um, podcast listeners are by and large in the business of lifelong learning so they're marketing and providing it and usually for a fee and so I know that 
you know, the, the focus of Make It Stick is effective learning and, and that's very important to our, our listeners um, because they have to make the, the products good and they need to know the, the science behind that. But there's also the issue of motivating learners. That That is, how do we get the learners to the learning experiences? Because even if we're building them in, in the best possible way and making use of these studies and, and the science, we still have to get them there so that they can appreciate and benefit from all that great learning design. And so, again, I know this takes you a little bit uh, away, perhaps, from, from the direct uh, content of the book, but do you have any advice or stories or anything to share around sort of how organizations might approach the marketing of learning? Well, I think uh, this is going to be different in every different segment of the marketplace. But uh, from a broad standpoint, uh, one of the more compelling pieces of research that's been done in recent years is done by Professor Carol Dweck at Stanford University, who became curious about why some people uh, become helpless in the face of challenges. And her research has shown that, uh, well, one thing that that other research has shown, you know, cognitive science and brain science uh, have shown that when you struggle to solve a problem and persist, uh, you build new connections in the brain, and those connections and the mental models that you build over time increase your mental abilities. And what uh, Dr. Dweck has come to understand through her empirical studies is that when people understand that effort uh, in trying to overcome a learning challenge builds mental capacity, they have a far greater motivation to persist than uh, other people who believe that their intellectual abilities are pretty much fixed from birth by their the gift of their genes. So uh, one important, very important, powerful uh, motivator for those of us out here in the real world struggling with new challenges is to understand that the struggle itself uh, toward an end uh, and the persistence uh, builds mental ability and, uh, and capability that you then uh, can achieve a higher level of effectiveness in your life depending on what the field is. So uh, I'm reminded of uh, the writer Rebecca Wells uh, who so famously wrote that life is short but wide. Uh, Our ability to acquire new skills, to go into unfamiliar territory and broaden our depth of knowledge and build new mental models widens our our experience and our ability across sectors to be effective with other people in in achieving uh, shared goals. So I I think motivation is a huge issue, separate from, largely separate from the question of how learning works, how we're able to make things stick in memory and bring them up uh, easily in uh, unexpected situations. That's where Make It Stick really focuses. Motivation, uh, when I read about motivation, do we want to write a chapter about motivation to make it stick? And I did some reading in it, and man, uh, <laughs> the, the theories and the science are, are, it's a whole different field, but it's an important one. You raise an important question. I think, for me, it comes down in in large measure to the fact that you can learn in a um, tough stuff that looks daunting from the beginning. Uh, You can acquire skills that look daunting. Uh, If you understand uh, how learning works and how uh, uh, spaced and um, 
mixed practice will build the kinds of connections in in your mind that you can draw on later to accomplish the ends you're after. Well, I think there are at least two interesting points to me in what you you raised there. I mean, one is 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 about that idea of uh, helping the learners to understand that the struggle is 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 for is for their better good if it's you know the the right kind of struggle and not too difficult and i think the interesting thing there is that there can be so much emphasis these days on you know it's you emphasize convenience with learning sometimes with the lifelong learning you know you can just drop in and get it or there's the the idea that you can come in and be this passive recipient but there really is the effort that the learner has to put in and, and maybe being upfront with the learner about that and then also helping to show that that the the second point that struck me was that point about just that what you learn in one area kind of increases your overall capability and therefore right can apply not just to whatever subject matter you're studying but just give you a richer wider life as you were saying yeah, well exactly i think for me in in writing this book one of the challenges for me since i don't have a science background was to learn the science well enough to explain it to the reader, I'm, and I consider myself then the reader, uh, in a way that is simple uh, and clear and engaging, but also that uh, doesn't oversimplify for the scientist reader, if you take my meaning. So there's a huge learning challenge for me in, in writing this book. Well, I bet you learned a tremendous amount. Like as you were saying, you're writing about learning, and there you are. Well, well right. I think one of the points that I was trying to make related to Dr. Dweck is that effort is useful toward an end. It, just placing yourself in a situation where things are difficult and and then saying, well, I, it must be good for me because it's been difficult, isn't the same as placing yourself on a path where you encounter difficulties to, and try to overcome them over time to achieve that skill or that knowledge that you want. And so uh, difficulty of a, of a certain type is desirable. And oh, where I was headed was it helped, a real breakthrough moment for me in writing the book was understanding why is it that we learn better when we try to get learning out of the brain than when we try to put it in. Mm. When we reread something over and over again, we're trying to get it into the brain, it doesn't stick. It sticks better when you try to get it out. Well, so the revelation for me was this understanding that what science is showing us is that when we encounter something new, it's encoded in the hippocampus part of the brain. And over uh, hours or perhaps even days, the, the brain uh, rehearses that learning and fills in gaps and moves it into long-term storage by connecting it to things that we already know. And that when you practice something over and over again, it's all in short-term memory. And you do see gains, but those gains melt away. You don't perceive that they melt away. You need to give learning time to be consolidated in long-term memory. And then you need to recall it later. And when you recall it later, and it's difficult to recall, that's the effort that causes the brain to reconsolidate that learning and make the key ideas more salient, strengthen the connections to other things you know, and help you sort out the important stuff from the stuff that's, you know, leave behind the stuff that's not that important. So that's the kind of mental effort spaced out over time that helps you build uh, mastery. And what we're, we tend to be drawn to are uh, 
things like underlining, highlighting, rereading as a study strategy or on the golf course, hitting that 20-foot putt over and over and over again. Because we see, we get this fluency from rereading. We we get a fluency with the text, which isn't the same as understanding the underlying ideas or being able to explain them in your own words. On the golf course with a 20-foot putt, you actually do see improvement through this uh, uh, blocked uh, over and over repetitive practice but that's what melts away and it's when you mix up the 20 foot putt with your other uh, uh, golf drives and in do it in other golf courses and different kinds of holes or you uh, take your reading material and and you pull out the key ideas and ask yourself um, to enumerate on them, uh, that's when you begin to build a kind of learning that doesn't feel uh, like mastery. It doesn't feel as good as the fluency you get from memorizing passages or that short-term gain from practicing your putt over and over again, but it actually is what begins to build the connections and the mastery that pay off long-term. And what you were saying there with that idea of, you know, the thinking about it as rather than putting it in as kind of what, what you can get out when you're you're um, working with a texter, that reminds me of um, one of the, the stories that tell in the last chapter of Make It Stick where you're talking to a, a West Point professor and and he's saying that you start with questions and then you read for answers and he was saying this just because of the sheer volume of the content that the, the West Point students have. They can't spend that much time rereading it or maybe even reading it all to begin with, much less rereading and highlighting. And, you know, and it just struck me that the same is definitely true of the lifelong learner who has you know so much uh, information that she's bombarded with and trying to make sense of um, and so I really liked that idea of starting with the questions and, and reading um, for the answers um, but then I thought well you know that's kind of from that is from the learner's perspective that's about how you know we approach you know texts or educational experiences so I was wondering if you might have any thoughts on what it might mean for the authors or, you know, to kind of use that term more broadly, the organizations in the business of lifelong learning who are providing that learning, you know, what, what might it mean for them to start with the question in mind? And, and is, is that something that they can do to sort of further help the learner or does it really all ultimately have to come back to the learner and, and we can't really help them as, as the provider of the learning? Yeah, that's a real good question. I think we've We've had this notion that uh, there are teachers and there are learners and that the teacher teaches the learner. Uh, I think what science is showing us is the learning is really uh, up to the individual learner. And what the, what the teacher uh, or author or instructor can do uh, at, at the best is to find, try to find a way to en- <clears throat> engage the learner at the point where the learner is, where, you know, what the learner knows and has some grasp of. And st- and start posing the questions that will require the learner to step out of that current knowledge level and get the begin to learn and practice the next level of learning. So uh, here's a very very simple example. Um, uh, Mary Pat Wenderoth is a professor of biology at the University of Washington in Seattle. And she's followed the science of learning and has applies it in many ways in her uh, science classes. But she was saying, for example, when she's giving a lecture, first one of the things she does with her students, she 
brief them on what the science of learning tells us and uh, how to uh, recognize and avoid um, the uh, fluency illusions or the illusions of knowing and really find out whether you are on top of the material or not. But she'll be lecturing on a topic and stop after five minutes and, and ask a question. And the students will turn to their notes and she'll say, put your notes aside and imagine that your mind is a forest and that the answer is in there somewhere. The more times you make a path to find it, the stronger that path will be and the easier it will be to find again later. So simply asking the question and asking the students to think about it. And if they can't get it, when they do get it, when they do go back to their notes, when they do discuss it among themselves and they get it, that act of having searched for it in the mind has been shown to uh, prepare the mind for the answer in a way that helps make it stick and become enduring. So I feel that teaching is in the, in this scheme is more a matter of coaching it's a more a matter of posing the questions and asking the the students be they 80 or 18 uh to wrestle with the question i hypothesize some answers and then go do their reading or then uh have a conversation in class uh and move forward question by question. It's kind of a Socratic, fundamentally a Socratic method, a dialectic often in many classes where students will argue one side or the other and, and reach deeply into what they know to try to build a constructive case that this is the, the correct answer. And the, in that form, a professor or a coach on the field uh, can help give feedback and help supply the correct answer and then help create exercises in which the learner uh, applies it in different forms to, to begin to build mastery from different sides of the material. I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I really believe we shouldn't be thinking of teachers as people who impart knowledge as much as uh, people who find a way to hook the learner through questions that engage the mental processes of the learner and the, and the effort of the learner to make those steps forward. Yeah, no, I think that uh, definitely resonates with me. And I think that whole idea, right, that, that the learner is as much her own teacher as, as anybody with that teacher title or, or professor title. Um, and it actually makes me think of, I heard, um, Fred Chappell, who's a, a, a local North Carolina writer, but he was talking about he, he started the creative writing program at Greensboro along with um, another writer. And once he'd done that, he had people coming up to him and saying, you know, well, do you actually think you can teach creative writing? And his response was, I'm, I'm not sure I can teach it, but I think people can learn it. And, uh, you know. Yeah, good for him. Good yeah. for him. Speaking as a writer, I would say I agree. And the way to learn is to start doing it, and then uh, try to get some sense of where what where you've succeeded and where you've come up short. And then, for me, you go and you read a whole lot of really good writing by people who know how to solve those problems, and you begin to see. You, things you had never seen before, which is th they've solved a problem that you've experienced and didn't know how to solve. And so that you can now, because you struggled with that question or that problem, you can learn that and begin to apply it in your own writing. It's a great, it's a great example of 
just what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So what's happening in the learning space and to the extent that you feel like you can come on it, comment on it, specifically the lifelong learning space that, that's happened maybe since the publication of Make It Stick that's exciting to you or, or interesting to you? Well, I'm not much in that space. I, uh, we're getting a tremendous response to make it stick. We're getting a lot of emails, some very interesting questions, some affirmations. Uh, and uh, I would say the people who are writing us, or well, we're getting a lot of invitations to speak as well, of course, um, the question is, how do I apply this? That mm. seems to be the question of the day. How do I apply this in a, a professional continuing education setting? How do I apply this in a K-12 setting? Uh, it, it, you know, at what age are students receptive to this kind of learning? Um, so it seems like there's a lot of uh, conversation going on, and there's um, uh, certainly a lot of, there have been a lot of, blogs and that sort of thing, but I, I don't have an overview of the uh, educational field. One of the things that's interesting for me working on this is Roddy Rodiger and Mark McDaniel are highly accomplished professors who are very, um, you know, the, the, the air they breathe is the world of academia and uh, science and and uh, students and achievement and so forth. Uh, I, I I got a bachelor's degree in English literature. That's the last time that I've spent any time as a student in, in a you know in a university. And my way of learning, actually, one of the things that appealed to me about their research is I am a kind of a trial and error learner. I like to get out in the, in it and try it, and then look and observe carefully how people are doing something I couldn't do, and then see if I could learn that. This kind of research affirms for me the way I've um, backed into my life, if you will. Uh, but because I haven't been an active um, participant in any aspect of the uh, teaching and learning uh, sphere, uh, it's an unusual experience for me to uh, have the kinds of conversations that we're having here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's difficult for me to report on what's happening generally in the field, although um, the evidence is that the science, it's not, we're not the first people to report this science. This science has been covered by the New York Times and other journals uh, in, over the years that it, the, the research studies have come out, but we are um, among the first to try to pull it together and make sense of it and to illustrate it through everyday examples of people out in their lives. And I think it's getting uh, beginning to get a broader uh, readership and understanding, which for me is a very uh, exciting thing to see. Yeah, exciting and probably satisfying. Certainly. Yeah. And, you know, because you did just talk about it there, I, again, you know, the book is a collaboration. And, and I know that many of the organizations that, that we know – either already are collaborating with, um, you know, subject matter experts or other organizations or, or have the opportunity to collaborate. So um, I don't know if, if you might be willing to share a little bit uh, about what that experience was like to collaborate and clearly kind of where you were bringing, you know, a storytelling um, strength to uh, go along with your uh, brother-in-laws and Mark McDaniels, you know, their, their cognitive um, psychology background. So, you know, was it a good a good collaboration. It was. It was uh, surprisingly 
Good. I, I wasn't surprised that I enjoyed collaborating with Roddy Rodiger because I've known him for 36 years and he's just a, a tremendous guy. And one of the things that was interesting for me and kind of moving into uh, as an observer of his field of expertise was to discover how prominent he is and how much he's accomplished. So that was very satisfying. But I think the, the collaboration... Um, Worked very well, I think, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is uh, I think uh, all three of us have a deep well of respect for each other's uh, knowledge. We all have uh, um, an agreeable personal style, which makes a big difference. Uh, and um, for me, I think I wanted to be clear about why I was involved. What do I bring to this? What value do I add since these two professionals have such uh, broad mastery of the topic. Well, who am I to get involved in this? Well, uh, I came into it saying I'm here representing the reader, and uh, I want to be able to work with you to help people who are not academic, who are not scientists, understand this and get excited by it the way I'm getting excited about it as I come to learn it. So I think that we became pretty clear about that, what our roles were. And besides which, they're extraordinarily busy continuing their professional lives. And uh, it's hard to say the book would have been written without somebody like me who didn't have anything better to do (laughs) coming in and working with them. Um, I don't think we had any uh, areas of uh, of friction uh, other than... As a fiction writer, uh, my uh, style of writing is a little freer than an <laughs> academics, and uh, we had to find a middle ground there. And uh, there are times when I needed answers to drafts uh, that uh, I had to wait because they were so deeply uh, committed to other things they were doing. It's amazing to me how hard these people work. So it was good, and it continues to be good. And we we divvy up the uh, emails that come in from readers depending on uh, who might be the better uh, correspondent, and uh, we divvy up the uh, speaking requests and so forth. So it's actually quite nice having three different authors for a book who can represent the book, yeah. uh, the marketplace, and so. Absolutely, and I, I really like what you said about you saw yourself as representing the reader because I think again a lot of the organizations that we work with that they um, whether or not the person has the title of instructional designer they have you know someone who's usually interfacing with a subject matter expert who really is you know deeply steeped in whatever the the topic is but who doesn't necessarily know um, how to think about the the learner, to be that learner advocate, just as you were the the reader's advocate. So I think there is a nice parallel there. Yeah, I think you're right. My wife went to us. I just put it aside. My my wife was a sales rep for IBM back years ago, uh, and she went through IBM sales school, which she claims is the best training she ever had in her life. And I'm always reminded of uh, the adage. I think I picked it up from her. You want to sell the customer what the customer wants to buy. And so one of the big challenges when you're writing something like this is, what does the reader want? You know. And and an example of that as we're going through this, I'm thinking, well, I'd like to know more about if I'm reading this, I want to know how this, uh, what they're telling me about cognitive science links up with what neuroscience is telling us. And so I advocated for a chapter on neuroscience. 
And they said, well, oh, I don't, we're not neuroscientists. And I said, well, let me do some reading and try to do some writing, and then let's see what we think. So I dived into that, and, uh, and then they took the material for that chapter and got with a neuroscientist to go through it and see whether it was okay. And, and it turned out to be okay, but a few tweaks here and there. But that's a case uh, where I, my customer was the reader, and I, if I'm sitting there reading it and I don't hear about neuroscience, I'm thinking, well, this is, you know, this is only part of the story. So that's great. That's a great example. That's very interesting to know. That's how that that part got into the book. <laughs> but um, so, you know, how do you approach your own personal learning? I mean, you talked a little bit about the last time you were in formal education and and all of that. But you know, here you are writing something which presumably possibly might be uh, taking some research. I mean, but but in general, how do you keep learning and growing your knowledge? Well, you know, it's starting with a question and reading for the answer. Uh, if, if the chapter's on, um, you know, the testing effect or the chapter's on uh, any of the chapters in the book, um, I would uh, ask my co-authors uh, to send me copies of studies uh, in the field and on the topic. I would read the studies, which was... Uh, not always pleasant, and uh, and then I would uh, I would go to the end where they had their end notes, and I'd find other studies that they built on, and I would occasionally get those to read f- further back in the process of the evolution of the research, and then I would try to organize this material generally in the form of a chapter where I could put a story in, and I could make the points, and then I would have to go back to each of those studies and say what you know what questions does this study try to answer and what does what do the people who did this study what's their opinion of why they got the results they got or how they explain it or what does it make them want to know next so it was a matter of following the question and that's it's frankly it's been the same for me writing historical fiction if i'm moving my characters through the landscape and i want to know what it smelled like and looked like and how people talked and what the tools were they used i suddenly take an interest in things otherwise i don't care about because i'm animating it through a story and uh, so for me learning is uh can i get hooked by something i don't know is there a question that that will pique my curiosity, that I will take the effort to pursue. And um, that's the start of every book for me. So the start of this book was, am I really willing to try to make that much of an effort to understand what the research shows and go out and find normal everyday people who are high achievers, who have interesting stories uh, that will illustrate some of the science. Well, yeah, I got into it. I got into it because it validated my own personal sense of, of how I learn in life. And um, so that's how I go about it. I, I try to find something interesting. In the days when I'm not finding anything interesting, get curious about are not very nice days. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think you're a better learner now that you've... Uh Worked on make better. it stick, yeah. Yeah, for sure I am because I know, I know the difference between something feeling like it's not productive and whether in fact it's not productive. I understand the importance of periodic, periodically retrieving from memory something I'm trying to hang on to. Yeah, yeah, I've, I really have uh, benefited from that process. Great. And so, if folks are interested in learning more about Make It Stick or about you, where where should they look? Well, we have a website. It's makeitstick.net. And uh, there are links to the three authors there. There are some um, 
podcasts and video uh, stuff. There's some reviews. Um, so that would be probably the best bet. And uh, if people want to be in touch by email, they can email us at authors at makeitstick.net. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for your time, Peter. It was a pleasure to talk with you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. So that wraps up Salisa's interview with Peter Brown. And as we are exiting today, I wanted to be sure to give just another mention of our upcoming learning technology design event that we will be holding in Arlington, Virginia on May 18th and 19th. Again, that's a learning experience that's designed specifically for professionals in the business of continuing education and professional development. And we hope you will join us at that. To get more information, just go to ltd.leadinglearning.com. Dot com. And again, thanks to YM Learning for being a sponsor for that event. Uh, YM Learning, formerly known as Digital Ignite. You can still find out uh, about uh, what Digital Ignite offers at www.digitalignite.com. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 20. That's episode and then the number 20. And while you're there, you'll also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And we do hope that you will consider subscribing if you aren't already. If you're getting value out of the podcast, do take just a second to subscribe. And take a minute too while you're there, if you don't mind, just to uh, pop over to iTunes, go to leadinglearning.com forward slash iTunes and give us a quick rating and review. Uh, We'd really appreciate that. It makes a lot of difference in helping others to find the podcast. And, you know, like we've said before, we like to know that folks are out there and uh, are actually enjoying and benefiting from what they're getting here. Finally, also consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. That'll auto-populate a tweet that you can use. Or if tweeting isn't your thing, you can grab that text and use it somewhere else or put the your rave reviews of, of the podcast in your own words and, and share the the word that way. So thanks again, and we will see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.